Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you P.D. James's Adam Dalgleish in A Taste for Death, while Dalgleish investigates two bodies found murdered in a London church. This will be a two-part series. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. Until Jean-Paul Higgins took it over, the Black Swan had been a modest riverside pub. The Black Swan was close enough to London to attract a fair number of regulars, people willing to drive the twenty-odd miles to enjoy the excellent food. Monsieur Jean-Paul, small and dark, greeted Kate and me at the door as if there were nothing he'd been looking for to more than a visit from the police. He confirmed that Lady Barone and Mr. Lampart had dined in the restaurant three days earlier and produced his list of bookings to prove it. He remembered that they had arrived a little before a quarter to nine and had left shortly after eleven. When I turned to the night Diana Travers had drowned, Monsieur Jean-Paul remained as helpful as before. He remembered Dominic Swain's party only too well, not the kind of client we usually attract. It was not agreeable. I was relieved when they left the dining room. Sir Paul wasn't with his wife's party, I understand. That is so. When they arrived, Mr. Lampard said that Sir Paul hoped to join them later, but he phoned at around ten to say that it would not, after all, be possible. Who took the call? I asked. My doorman, Henry. Henry believes that ten minutes earlier he actually saw Sir Paul in the car park. We sent for Henry. Oh, yes, sir, I saw him. How certain are you it was Sir Paul Barone? Pretty positive, sir. Do you know what car he drives? Black Vauxhall, I think. There was no Vauxhall in the car park that evening, though. And about ten minutes after you saw him, Sir Paul rang to say he wouldn't be arriving after all. That's right, sir. And that's all you can tell us? Well, it seems daft when I come to think about it. Go on. He was walking quickly and in the shadow of the hedge, but there was something about the way his jacket was clinging. His trousers, too. I'll swear he was wet, sir. Soaking wet. I think he'd been in the river. But even odder is that he wasn't walking away from the river. He was walking towards it. The main purpose of our visit to the Black Swan had been achieved. Lampard's alibi held. But the visit had served another purpose. Now, more than ever... I was convinced that the three deaths were linked. Sir Paul, Diana Travers, and Teresa Nolan. Scarsdale Lodge was a modern L-shaped block of flats in Stanmore, conveniently on the route to Paul Barone's Hertfordshire constituency. Number 46 was a corner flat on the top floor. A.D. and I trod silently along the carpeted corridor and stopped at a white door with Carol Washburn neatly printed beneath the bell push. The door was opened almost immediately. You know why we're here, of course, Miss Washburn. Do you feel able to talk about him? 
The first she'd heard about the double death was on the television news. The shock had been profound. Now A.D. gave her the details. Having heard them, curiously, it was her lover's religious experience, not his murder, that she needed most to talk about. I knew then I'd lost him. Not as a friend, perhaps, but then I didn't want him as a friend. I'd lost him as a lover. I'd lost him forever. Did he ever suggest marriage? Forgive me, this question could be important. You think someone could have slit his throat to prevent him asking for a divorce so that he could marry me? You're wasting your time. No, he never suggested marriage. And neither did I. Did he tell you he had a poison pen letter about Theresa Nolan and Diana Travers? Yes, he told me. And if you're thinking that Theresa Nolan's child, the one she aborted, was his, you're mistaken. He'd certainly have told me. Look, it was just a poison pen letter. Politicians get them all the time. What does it matter now? The scandal and the lies. They can't hurt him. Nothing can. Not anymore. Were there things that did hurt him? He was human, wasn't he? Of course there were. What things? His wife's infidelity? Miss Washburn, my priority is catching his murderer, not preserving his reputation. I'll try to see that they're not incompatible, but I'm clear what has to come first. Shouldn't you be? No. I've preserved his privacy for three years. It's cost me a lot, but I'm not complaining. I knew the rules. We could never be seen together, and I always took second place to his job, his wife, his constituents, his mother. There were a lot of things I couldn't give him. But I could give him secrecy, discretion. And that I intend to continue giving him. You'll catch Paul's murderer, Commander Dalgleish. But you'll have to do it without me. I'm not going to break his confidences just so you can notch up another success. Goodbye, Commander. Mrs Iris Minns did general housework four days a week for the Barones. We got her address from Miss Matlock, a council flat on the second floor of a block off the Portobello Road. As we crossed the wide courtyard, John Massingham said, I'll do the talking. I felt the familiar spurt of resentment, but said nothing. We found ourselves facing a small, compact figure with a square face, a round, determined chin, and a pair of dark, almost black eyes which gave us a quick appraising glance as if inspecting us for dust. She motioned me to one of the two armchairs and took the other herself, leaving John to turn a dining chair round and perch somewhat uncomfortably on it. Lady Ursula said you'd be along sooner or later when she phoned me with the news. So that was the first you'd heard of Sir Paul's death, when his mother rang to warn you? Warn me? No call to warn me. I didn't slit his throat for him, poor man. Mind you, you'd have thought Miss Matlock might have taken the trouble to phone earlier. That would have been better than me hearing it on the six o'clock news. Lady Ursula rang just before nine, nice of her to trouble. But then we've always got on well, me and Lady Ursula. Mind you, she didn't tell me much. What happened? Suicide, was it? We can't be sure, Mrs Minns. Not until we know more results of tests and so on. When did you last see Sir Paul? Just before he went out, on Tuesday. About past ten, that would be. We was in the library. I'd gone in to polish the desk, and they was sitting there. 
So I said, I'll come back later. And he said, no, come in, Mrs Minns, I won't be long. What was he doing? Like I said, sitting at his desk. He had his diary open. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. I think I don't know a diary when I see one. After he'd finished writing in it, he closed it up, put it in the top right-hand drawer where it's usually kept. Anything else happened between you? Not much. I asked him if I could borrow one of his books. Borrow one of his books? That's right. I'd seen it on the bottom shelf when I'd been dusting, and I fancied reading it. It's there, under the television, if you're interested. A Rose by Twilight by Millicent Gentle. I haven't seen a book by her for years. She reached for it in its luridly romantic dust jacket and handed it to John. He flicked through and passed it over to me. Hardly his kind of reading, I'd have thought. I took the book and opened it. On the flyleaf was written, To Paul Barone with every good wish from the author. Underneath was the signature, Millicent Gentle. And the date, the 7th of August. It was the date of Diana Travers drowning. Apparently John hadn't noticed. I closed the book. We'll take this book back to Camden Hill Square if you've finished with it, Mrs Minns. Please yourself. I wasn't thinking of pinching it, if that's what you're thinking. What happened after Sir Paul gave you the book? He went out, didn't he? Heard the front door open and shut. And you're certain he put the diary back in the drawer? He didn't take it with him. Look, what is it about the diary? Are you saying I stole it or something? It isn't in the drawer now, Mrs Minns. Of course, we don't suspect anyone of taking it. But it could be important. You see, if he did make an appointment for the next day, then it isn't very likely he meant to kill himself. I see. Well, he didn't take it with him. I saw him put it back with my own eyes. And if he did come back for it later, it wasn't while I was in the house. When did you leave? Five o'clock, my usual time. Sir Paul's marriage, Mrs Minns. Would you say it was a happy one? Hardly ever saw them together. When I did, they seemed all right. Never shared a bedroom, though. Some couples prefer not to. Maybe, but there's not sharing and not sharing, if you get my meaning. I make the beds, you see. That may be your idea of a marriage, but it's not mine. Hardly the way to produce the next baronet. Well, I did wonder about that a few weeks ago. Off her breakfast she was, and that isn't like her. But not much chance, I reckon, too worried about her figure. Mind you, she's all right when she's in a good mood. Too gushing, though. Old Mrs Minsby a darling and fetch my dressing gown. Mrs Minsby an angel and run a bath for me. Sweet as sugar. As long as she gets her own way. There were no quarrels then, as far as you know? Not till Tuesday morning, anyway. And then you could hardly call it a quarrel. Takes two to quarrel. She was screeching fit to reach the whole house, but I didn't hear much from him. When was this, Mrs Minns? When I took up her breakfast tray at half past eight. I got to the bedroom door when I heard her screeching. You're going to that door! You can't, not now! We need you! We both need you! I won't let you go! Something like that. And then I heard his voice very low. I stood outside the door wondering what to do when he came out. White as paper he was. He saw me and said, I'll take the tray, Mrs Minns. So I gave it to him. And he took it into the bedroom? 
That's right. And shut the door. And I went back to the kitchen. Let's get back to the library. Who else went in there that Tuesday? Let's see. Um, Mr Musgrave from the constituency office. He waited from half past twelve to nearly two, hoping Sir Paul would come back for lunch. Then Miss Sarah was there about four o'clock. She'd come to see her grandma. Must have got fed up waiting and let herself out. Only one more thing, Mrs Mince. This um, Diana Travers, how did you get on with her? <laughs> Supposed to be a cleaner. Never done it in her life before, you could see that. Actress, she said she was, looking for work. Wanted a job she could chuck if anything turned up. Did you get on well with her? No reason why not. Bit nosy. Found her one day looking in a drawer of Sir Paul's desk. Bold as brass about it. Just laughed. No harm in her, though. I liked her, otherwise I wouldn't have let her live here. You mean she lived here? With you? No one told us that. Well, they didn't know, did they? No reason why they should. She left about ten days before the accident. What did she do with herself while she was living here? I hardly saw her. Two mornings a week she worked in Camden Hill Square. The rest of the time she said she was off on auditions. She went out a good bit at night, but she never brought anyone here. Then the evening after she drowned, before the inquest even, these two chaps turn up. Just when I got back from Camden Hill Square, sitting in their car watching out for me, said they were from a solicitor's, come to collect any of her things she might have left here. Did they show you any identity, any authority? A letter from the firm, posh writing paper, and they had a card... So I let them in. I stayed by the door and watched them, mind. There's nothing here, I said. She left nearly a fortnight ago. They properly turned the place over. Found nothing, of course. Mm. Who do you think they were? <laughs> Come off it. They were two of your lot. Fuzz. Think I don't know a policeman when I see one? bring away that novel. Millicent Gentle's signature is dated the 7th of August. That's the day Diana Travers died. So it's on the cards that Barone met Millicent Gentle that day and she gave him the book. Oh yes. Could be. It's also possible she signed it on the 7th and left it for him at his constituency office or posted it to his London address. Those men, John. The ones who searched Diana Travers' room. Who do you think they were? Special branch? That's my guess. Oh. Look, Kate, either Travers worked for them and they planted her in Camden Hill Square, or she worked for some much more sinister organisation and they rumbled her. If they were special branch, there's going to be trouble. Come to think of it, they did tell us about Barone's mistress. Knowing that we'd have discovered all about Carol Washburn for ourselves quickly enough. That is typical of special branch. Their idea of cooperation is make sure you don't tell them anything they don't know already. 
I decided to drive alone that Saturday afternoon to see Teresa Nolan's grandparents in their Surrey cottage. Mrs. Nolan, a small-boned elderly woman with a sharp, anxious face, opened the door and led me into the square sitting-room. Her husband was sitting facing the window and responded to my greeting with a stiff nod. I explained that I was investigating Sir Paul Barone's death, and that shortly before he died he'd had an anonymous letter suggesting that he might have had something to do with their granddaughter's death. Shaken, Mrs. Nolan said that Teresa had taken her own life, and that the anonymous letter certainly hadn't been sent from their cottage. I hastened to reassure her that we'd never thought it had, but I wondered whether Teresa had ever talked to them about anyone, a close friend perhaps, who might have blamed Sir Paul for her death. Mrs. Nolan turned to him. She insisted there was no proof, and that he was a married man, and Teresa wouldn't ever do such a thing. Albert Nolan maintained that there was no knowing what she might have done. After all, first she got the baby, then the abortion, then she committed suicide. What was one more sin when you've got that on your conscience? Mrs. Nolan offered to show me Teresa's room. I followed her up the narrow staircase. The room was at the back of the cottage, small, north-facing. The furniture was minimal, the bed had been stripped. Having nothing to remember but grief, they divested the room even of her personality and closed the door. I had no hope now of learning anything useful at the Nolan's cottage, but my instinct to search made me pull open the drawer of the bedside cabinet. Then I saw that something of Teresa did remain, her missile. I picked it up and leafed through it. A small square of paper torn from a notebook fell out. Picking it up, I found myself looking at three short columns of figures and letters. And that's what today's brush with reality has brought me, I thought, as I eased the car gently back onto the road. A full measure of the Nolan's bitterness and pain, and a scrap of paper with a few letters and digits jotted down, perhaps not even by Teresa herself. We were in the office all next day, Sunday. At about a quarter to seven in the evening, the phone on my desk rang. D.R. Miskin. It's Carol Washburn. I want to see you. There's something I've decided to tell you. Well, we'll come round now. No, not here. I don't want you to come here. Not ever again. I'll meet you tomorrow morning, nine o'clock. The formal garden in Holland Park, the one near the orangery. Do you know it? Yes, I know. It will be there. I don't want Commander Dalgleish. I don't want any male officer. Just you. I won't talk to anyone else. Right. Can you give me any idea what it's about? It's about the death of Teresa Nolan. My interview with Miles Gilmartin of Special Branch, elegant in impeccable grey, was enlightening if frustrating. We're supposed to be on the same side, I said. Paul Barone was murdered. If I can't get cooperation from you, where can I expect it? Sorry we didn't tell you earlier that Travers was one of our operatives, said Gilmartin. Earlier? I said you didn't tell me at all. I had to discover it for myself. I suppose Barone really was murdered, said Gilmartin. There's a rumour it could have been suicide. He was murdered, I said. And this girl, Diana Travers, was she the most suitable person you could find to spy on a minister of state? Even for special branch it seems an odd choice. But she wasn't assigned to Barone, said Gilmartin. What made you think that? The target was Ivor Garrard. We infiltrated her into his cell. 
I see. And you conveniently forgot to mention the fact when we inquired about Garrod. You must have known he was a suspect. He still is. Well, you don't have to look any further for the writer of your poison pen letters, said Gilmartin. Undermining the government by discrediting ministers was just a small part of his game. Travers discovered that. But her work for us had nothing to do with Barone's death. Maybe not, I said. But her death may be connected to the case in other ways. Her death, said Gilmartin, was for natural causes. The autopsy proves it. She ate and drank too much, plunged into cold water, got tangled in the reeds, and drowned. There were no suspicious marks on the body, and, as you're doubtless aware, she'd had sex just before. There seemed little point continuing the discussion. I'm surprised you thought Garrod worth the trouble, I said. Garrod's connections would surprise you, said Gilmartin. Oh, yes, he's worth it. I can assure you of that. I woke early on Monday morning, impatient for the forthcoming interview with Carol Washburn. Holland Park was only a few minutes' walk from my block, and just before nine I made my way to the terrace above the formal gardens. When we met, we began walking together down a mushy path between the woodlands. After a while, Carol paused and looked into the wilderness. See that slanting silver birch? That's where he found Theresa Nolan, over there. We came here together a week later. I think he needed to show me. When the nursing home rang to ask if anyone at Camden Hill Square knew where she was, Paul guessed that she might be here. He must have known Theresa Nolan very well. Perhaps. She used to talk to him in the night hours when Lady Ursula was asleep. Tell him about herself, her family. The child Theresa Nolan was carrying. Could it have been his? Once I'd have said no and been absolutely certain... I'm not certain of anything anymore. I thought Paul always told me everything, that there was nothing hidden between us. Yesterday, I learned that there were things he didn't tell me. Why, what happened? Barbara Barone came to see me, out of the blue. The doorbell rang, and there she was. Why, what did she come for? Oh, to satisfy her curiosity about me. That was one reason, I've no doubt. But it wasn't the main one. Her main purpose was to gloat, if she could... She asked me if I was pregnant. When I told her I wasn't, she announced that she was, and that there was no doubt the baby was Paul's. She wouldn't have said it if a DNA test afterwards could disprove it, so it must be true. It came as a terrible shock. Paul never gave me any hint that he was still sleeping with Barbara. So you're not sure about Teresa? Not 100%. And Paul didn't tell the whole truth about finding her body, either. There were two letters in her jacket pocket. One was addressed to her grandparents, asking their forgiveness. That was read out at the inquest. But there was another, addressed to Paul. That's what I've come to tell you. Did you see it? No. He brought it to the flat, but he didn't let me read it. He told me what was in it. Apparently, while Teresa was nursing at Pembroke Lodge, one of the patients had been brought some champagne by her husband, and she'd become a bit tipsy. She was gloating over the baby, a son after three girls, and she said, thanks to darling Stephen. Then she let out that if patients wanted a child of a particular sex, Lampart would do an early amniocentesis and abort an unwanted fetus. Women who weren't prepared to go through a pregnancy to get a child of the wrong sex knew where to go. 
But he was... He is taking a terrible risk. Not really. There's nothing on paper. Teresa tried to get some evidence, but it wasn't easy. So that was the explanation of the mysterious jottings which A.D. had found in Teresa's missile. Of course, she didn't dare speak to anyone about all this. What could she hope to do against a powerful man like Stephen Lampart? In any case, how could she talk about his mortal sin when she was about to commit a mortal sin herself? But she thought that before she died, she had to do something to put a stop to it. She thought about Paul. He was a minister, a powerful man. He'd see that it was stopped. And did he? How could he? Lampart's his wife's lover. It would look like blackmail, or worse, revenge. So he tore up the letter in my presence and flushed it down the lavatory. He said, if I haven't the courage to use it, then I must get rid of it. Before he did that, he made me promise to say nothing. Of course I gave my word. Now I've broken it. He took absolutely no action. You're sure of that? He may have spoken to Lampart, told him he knew what was going on, but had no evidence. Paul said he'd do that, but I don't know if he did. We never discussed it again. What he did do was take his money out of Pembroke Lodge. It was quite a bit, I think. Originally invested by his brother. We began walking slowly down the path. I thought, suppose Paul Barone had spoken to Lampart. With the evidence destroyed, the doctor would have little to fear. A scandal could hurt Sir Paul as much as it harmed Lampart. But after Barone's experience in that church, perhaps with his own career thrown away, he might see it as his moral duty to expose and ruin Lampart. And what of Barbara? On the one hand, a husband who's chucked away job and prospects and is even proposing to sell their home. On the other, a lover who might be facing ruin. But could Lampart and Barbara really have had the time? Someone, Barone or his killer, had been using the washroom at St Matthew's at eight o'clock. So either Barone was alive at eight, or the murderer was still on the premises. Either way, it was difficult to see how Lampart could have been sitting in the dining room of the Black Swan before quarter to nine. All the same, I decided to ask the question. Miss Washburn, do you think Stephen Lampart killed Sir Paul, with or without his wife's connivance? No. He'd be a fool to involve her in anything like that. And she hasn't the courage or the wit to plan it alone. But I've given you a motive... A motive for both of them. It ought to be enough to make life uncomfortable for her. Is that what you want? <laughs> no, that's not what I want. I want her to be harried and grilled and frightened. I want her disgraced. I want her arrested, imprisoned for life. I want her dead. It won't happen, none of it. And the awful thing is that I've hurt myself more than I can ever hurt her. He told me in confidence. He trusted me. He always trusted me. I broke his confidence. I broke the sacred bond between us. Once I'd phoned you, once I'd asked you to meet me, there was no turning back. Now there's nothing left. Nothing of our loving that will ever be free of pain and guilt.
Yes, Kate. Something interesting, sir. We've just got Millicent Gentle's address from her publishers. She'd moved and they took some time to trace her. She's living at Riverside Cottage, Coldham Lane, near Cookham. I've looked it up. Coldham Lane runs almost opposite to the Black Swan. She must have given Sir Paul her book on August the 7th. Seems likely. Ring her, Kate. Ask if she'll see us tomorrow morning. Meanwhile, I'll see you at Pembroke Lodge. This alleged letter, Commander, Theresa Nolan was psychologically disturbed. Something written just before she killed herself couldn't possibly count as reliable evidence. Even if you have this letter, which I assume you haven't, we both know it would be worthless in a court of law. Are you telling us, Mr Lampard, that the girl's story is untrue? To be charitable, let's say mistaken. Or possibly she, or perhaps Barone, were lying. But if this so-called letter is meant to give me a motive, it's absurd. I didn't kill Barone. Even if I were capable of such a brutal murder, I certainly wouldn't take Barone's wife with me and expect her to wait in the car while I slit her husband's throat. The whole idea is absurd. And Theresa Nolan's belief about the abortion of healthy fetuses because they weren't the sex the mother wanted. A total, unprovable fabrication, Inspector. All operations done here in Pembroke Lodge are fully recorded. The pathological reports are in the medical records, and I can assure you that there's nothing incriminating in any file in this building. The allegation is ridiculous. But Paul Barone believed it. He got rid of his shares in Pembroke Lodge after Theresa Nolan's death. I think he spoke to you. I don't know what he said, but I can guess. No, we never spoke. And assuming he did believe it, he'd have been in an odd position, morally speaking. He wanted a son and heir. He certainly didn't want another daughter. Nor, incidentally, did Barbara, who'd had one miscarriage, a female, eight months after their marriage. So even assuming the story is true, although Barone couldn't stomach the means, he wouldn't have been displeased with the ends. No wonder he was a psychological mess. So Theresa Nolan was on something. I'll be frank with you, Commander. <laughs> if I had aborted those unwanted fetuses, it wouldn't weigh on my conscience. A woman has a right to choose whether she bears a child. I happen to think she also has a right to choose which sex. No child should be unwanted. And a two-month fetus isn't a human being. It's a collection of tissue. In my book, we've the right to do anything we can to make human life more agreeable, safer, less full of pain. Provided, presumably, we don't hurt other people and the act isn't illegal. Getting rid of an unwanted fetus hurts no one. But aborting a fetus that's not wanted because of its sex, that's certainly outside the law. It was practically a confession, sir. He was justifying it. But we'll never be able to use it in court. And it was a confession to medical malpractice, not murder. Well, what about the murder, sir? Oh, Lampard had means and motive and he's got the knowledge and the arrogance to think he can get away with it. But what about opportunity? He was at the Black Swan just after 8.30. Yes. That water flowing from the vestry waste pipe at 8 o'clock, are we being misled by that? If Barone had died at the earliest possible time... At 7 o'clock, isn't it, sir? That's right. What happens to Lampard's alibi then? Someone was responsible for the tap running in the church kitchen at 8 o'clock, but who? And whoever turned it on, did the same person turn it off? Tuesday morning couldn't have heralded a better day for a drive out of London. 
If Kate thought we'd drive straight to Riverside Cottage, I disappointed her. The road passed the Black Swan, and when we reached it, I stopped and turned into the car park. Opposite, and about twenty yards downstream, I could see a bungalow. This, I guessed, was our destination, and I knew, too, that that's where I'd find the clue I sought. As we looked, the dumpy figure of a woman came out of the side door and made her way to the landing stage, a dog trotting at her heels. She lowered herself into a dinghy, cast off, and began rowing across the river towards the Black Swan. You must be Miss Millicent Gentle. If so, we're on our way to see you. This is Inspector Kate Miskin. Hello. I'm Adam Dalglish. I wasn't expecting you for another half hour, Commander. How pleasant to meet you like this. I'd row you across, but it would have to be one at a time, and that would be rather slow. I'm afraid it's five miles by road, but perhaps you have a car. Indeed we do. Then I'll be waiting for you. I'll see you in about ten minutes. When Miss Gentle opened her door to us, we walked into cheerfulness and light. The dog, make peace, slumped down in front of the empty stove and heaved a malodorous sigh. Miss Gentle poured us coffee. How did you find me? It was the book you autographed for him on the 7th of August. Of course. We need to know exactly what happened that night. You did see him. Oh, yes. Let me explain. I get on very well with Mr. Jean-Paul Higgins, and having a big restaurant just across the river rarely bothers me. His customers are usually no trouble. But on that night, there were young people shouting and screaming. I was trying to work, and it got very irritating. So I went out to the bank, and I could see that there were four of them in a punt. Two of them were trying to change places, and they were rocking very dangerously. I tried to ring Mr. Higgins, but I couldn't get through. So Makepeace and I rowed across. I made for my usual spot, and as I turned the boat to draw up to the bank, I saw these two men. Did you know who they were? Not at the time. Afterwards, I knew one of them, Sir Paul Barone. What were they doing, Miss Gentle? Fighting. They didn't notice me, of course. Who won? Oh, Sir Paul. He landed what I think is called a hook to the jaw. The younger man fell. Then Sir Paul picked him up by the collar of his coat and his trousers and threw him into the river. He made quite a splash. And then? Sir Paul waded into the water and fished him out. He threw him down on the grass, said something, and walked upstream towards me. As he drew alongside, I popped up my head and said, Good evening. I don't suppose you remember me, but we met last June at the Hertfordshire Conservative Fete. I'm Millicent Gentle. What did he do? He came over and shook hands. He was dripping wet, of course, but was as self-possessed as when we'd met at the fete. I said, I saw the fight. You haven't killed him, have you? He said, no, I only wanted to. He was beginning to shiver, so I suggested he come back to the cottage and dry off. He said, that's very kind of you, but I think I'd better move the car. I suggested he park it somewhere at the side of the road, and that I row him across. He disappeared and was back in a few minutes. What happened to the other man? I didn't wait to see. I knew he'd be all right. He wasn't alone, you see. 
He had a girl with him. You're quite sure about that. Quite sure. She came out of the bushes and watched when Sir Paul threw him into the river. I couldn't have missed her. She was quite naked. This girl. Look. I have a photo. Do you recognise her? Isn't that the girl who was drowned? Yes. It could have been her. I didn't see her face very clearly. I'm afraid. The light was very poor, and they must have been forty yards away. When Sir Paul flung this man into the water, what did she do? Roared with laughter. When Sir Paul waded in to help him out, she sat on the bank, quite naked, helpless with laughter. The scene was quite bizarre. Two men stumbling out of the river, and a naked girl sitting on the bank, roaring away. So when Sir Paul had moved his car, you rode him across. Could you still see the man and the girl? No, the river bends slightly, but I could still hear the girl laughing as I rode across. I had to go carefully with Makepeace and a passenger. We were very low in the water. The girl. How long did she go on laughing? Until we were almost on the opposite bank. Then suddenly the laughing stopped. Did you hear a cry? A splash? No, nothing. What happened then? First, Sir Paul asked to use the telephone. I, I left him here and went into the kitchen. Then I suggested he have a hot bath. While he was in the bathroom, I put his clothes into the tumble dryer. Oh, I, I'd given him my father's old dressing gown to wear after his bath. So while we waited for his clothes to dry, we settled down in front of the fire, and I made some hot cocoa. I told him about my work, and that's when I gave him a copy of my last book. Have you spoken of this to any other person? No one. I wouldn't have told you if you hadn't phoned, and he weren't dead. Please continue to say nothing, Miss Gentle. It could be very important. I thought I knew why Barone had been on the river bank. He'd arrived to join the dinner party, to greet his wife and Lampard, his wife's lover, to take part in a civilized charade. And then he'd heard the murmur of running water, and had been drawn to a few moments of solitude and peace. So he'd wandered down to the river. Such a small thing, a simple impulse, and it had led him to that blood-drenched vestry. Dominic Swain, his wife's brother. Had stepped out of the bushes. Did he already know that this was Teresa Nolan's lover, the father of her aborted child? Was this the one other secret that Teresa had confided to him in that final letter? Did he confront Swain with that knowledge? And when Sir Paul left you that night, that was the last time you saw him. Oh no, I, I saw him on the afternoon of his death. I thought you knew. Miss Gentle, how could we have known? I thought he'd have told someone where he was going. Is it important? Very important, Miss Gentle.、Oh. Tell us what happened. There isn't much to tell. He arrived quite unexpectedly just before three o'clock. He was on foot and carrying a bag. He must have walked the four miles from the station. He said he felt like a walk along the river. He hadn't eaten, so I made him something, and then he set out for his walk. He returned about four thirty, and I made some tea. 
His shoes were very dirty, so I gave him my shoebox, and he sat outside on the steps and cleaned them. Then he took up his bag, said goodbye, and was on his way. It was as simple as that. As simple as that. The lost hours accounted for. He'd wanted to spend a few hours where no one in the world could find him. And then he must have gone straight from Paddington to St. Matthew's Church. We'd have to check the train times, but it was most unlikely he could have gone back to the house, collected the diary, and still been at the church by six. It's a new motive, sir. Swain must have hated him. The thrashing, the humiliation, thrown in the river, dragged out like a dog, and all in front of Diana Travers. Oh, yes. Swain must have hated him. So we had it at last. The motive not only for the murder, but for this particular murder with its mixture of planning and impulse, its brutality, the cleverness which hadn't quite been clever enough. I recognised the mind behind it. I'd met it before. The mind of a killer who isn't content to take a life, but who avenges humiliation with humiliation, who wants his victim not only dead, but disgraced. The mind of a man who has felt inferior all his life, but who will never feel inferior again. suddenly appeared in Scotland Yard asking to see me. She completely lost touch with young Darren Wilkes and had come to me as a last resort. I'm terribly sorry, Miss Wharton, I said, but I don't see how we can help. The juvenile court has made a supervision order to the local authority. It's their concern now. I know, she said. That's what the social worker Mrs Kendrick told me. But I thought you might be able to use your influence. We have no influence, Miss Wharton, not in this. Oh, please, Inspector, I'd be very careful. I wouldn't talk to him about the murder. Only I'd feel so much better if I could just see him again, just to know that he's all right. I thought for a moment. I don't know where Darren's living, but I do remember his school, Bollington Road Junior. Do you know it? Oh, yes, she said. I can get there. You could try passing at the time they come out. If you met him accidentally, I don't see how social work could object to that. Greatly cheered, Miss Wharton said goodbye to me. What happened shortly afterwards, we learned only very much later. Miss Wharton had left the yard and was hesitating on the edge of the pavement when she heard someone say, Excuse me, but aren't you Miss Wharton? I'm Dominic Swain, Sir Paul's brother-in-law. You've been to the yard, haven't you? So have I. I feel in need of some refreshment. Do join me. Before she knew it, Miss Wharton was sitting in the bar of a nearby hotel, sipping a medium sherry. Swain lifted his G&T. Cheers. I'm in need of this after the grilling they gave me. I suppose they've been questioning you about the murders, too. Did they give you a bad time? Oh, no, it wasn't at all like that. And Miss Wharton explained the purpose of her visit, telling him all about Darren, how they'd visited the church regularly— and how they'd been the ones to find the body. You know, she said, a second sherry miraculously in her hand, 
I had a feeling while Darren and I were sitting there in the church waiting to be interviewed that there was something the boy knew, something he was keeping back, something that he was feeling, well, perhaps a little guilty about. You've told the police about this? Oh, no. It would sound so stupid. But the boy might have noticed something, something you didn't see. It was only a feeling I had. Perhaps I'll know more when I'm able to see him. I'm planning to meet him when he comes out of school. But he'll be with other children. He might be embarrassed to see you waiting there. Why not write him a note and ask him to meet you? Where did you usually meet? Oh, on the towpath. That's where we always met. I could take him a note if you like, said Swain. I'll give it to one of the other kids to deliver, or I'll ask one of them to point him out. Darren will get it, I promise. Look, let me write it for you. Suppose we make it Friday at four o'clock on the towpath. Would that be all right for you? Yes, yes, perfectly. Swain wrote quickly, folded the paper and put it in the envelope. What's his surname? Wilkes. He's Darren Wilkes. And the school is Bollington Road Junior. It's near Lisson Grove. He wrote the address. Then they finished their drinks and Swain insisted on summoning a taxi and paying the driver to take her home. After the taxi was out of sight, he took the message from the envelope and reread it. The time and place were exactly as he'd said, but the date wasn't Friday. It was the following afternoon, Thursday, and it wasn't Miss Wharton who'd be waiting on the towpath, but Swain himself. What a fiasco, Kate. Swain just sits there, with his brief by his side, smiling. I was with Miss Matlock all that evening. If you think otherwise... Prove it. Yeah, he's a cool one. I think it's back to Miss Matlock. If we can't break him, we'll have to break her. We've simply got to overturn that alibi of his. More than that. We must find some physical evidence. Well, the thing is, that Swain's confident the evidence doesn't exist. He can see that our whole case is circumstantial. If we'd got something stronger, we'd have produced it by now, and he's actually saying what other people are thinking, that Barone got Theresa Nolan pregnant, rejected her, and killed himself, partly out of remorse, and partly because the dirt in Paternoster Review warned him that the scandal was about to break. My God, Kate. I hope the old man hasn't got it wrong. Dear Miskin. All right. I'll come now. What's the matter? It's my grandmother. She's been mugged. That was the hospital. They want me to collect her. I'll have to take the rest of the day off. Can't they get someone else to cope? There is no one else. Ah, Commander Dalgleish. How kind of you to come. Good evening, Father. I just have to clear the offertory boxes. Uh, not that I expect to find much... Some small change. Good gracious. Six one-pound coins. We never did as well as that before the murders. <clears throat> Come with me, Commander. There's just the box in front of the grill. Ah, Miss Wharton. Hard at work as usual. There's never as much in here. Miss Wharton, who'd finished straightening the chairs in the Lady Chapel, came bustling up. I don't expect there'll be more than eighty pence, she said. I used to give Darren a ten-pence piece to light a candle, but really no one else uses this box. He loved stretching his hands out through the grill and striking the match. 
It's funny, but I'd forgotten about that until now. I suppose it was because he didn't have time to light the candle that dreadful morning. There it is, you see, still unlit. Only seven coins this time. And a button. Rather an unusual one. It looks like silver. Miss Wharton peered closer. That must have been Darren, she said. How naughty of him. I remember now he bent down by the path. I thought he was picking a flower. It really was very wrong of him to steal from the church. Poor child, it must have weighed on his conscience. No wonder I thought he was feeling guilty about something. I'm hoping to see him tomorrow. I'll have a little word about it. And she bustled away. May I see the button, Father? And there at last it was, resting on my palm, the piece of physical evidence we'd been seeking. I'd seen just such buttons before. They were a feature of the Italian jacket that Dominic Swain had been wearing the first time we'd seen him. A single button, so small a thing, but so vital. And we had two witnesses to its finding. I stood looking at it, and there came over me a feeling not of excitement or triumph, but of immense weariness, of completion. When was this box last cleared, Father? Two weeks ago. The morning of the day Sir Paul was murdered. I'm afraid I forgot to empty it last week. Father Barnes, I'm going to place this button in one of the envelopes from the little vestry. I'll then seal it and ask you to sign across the flap. Of course. Then this button's important? It's a clue? Yes, it's a clue. Do you suppose the owner will come looking for it? I don't think for one moment that he's missed it yet. I saw the owner wearing the jacket after the murder, and it seemed to have all its buttons. My guess is that this is the spare originally sewn inside the jacket on a tag. It must have worked loose. It was Sarah Barone who let us in. Without speaking, she led us across the hall to the library. Lady Ursula and Barbara Barone were seated at the table, which was stacked with letters and documents. Barbara Barone was painting her nails, impervious to her surroundings. Have you seen a button like this, Lady Ursula? Not to my knowledge. Looks as though it came from a man's jacket. Probably an expensive one. And you, Miss Barone? Let me see. No, it's not mine. That wasn't my question. I asked if you'd seen it or one like it. If I have, I can't remember. I'm not very interested in clothes. Why not ask my stepmother? Barbara Brown glanced up and denied ever having seen it. I knew she was lying, but not, I thought, through fear. For her, lying when in doubt was the easiest response, a way to postpone trouble. I turned to Lady Ursula and asked to speak to Miss Matlock. When Evelyn Matlock came in, she stood for a moment, her eyes fixed on Lady Ursula. Then she marched over to me and stood stiff as a soldier on a charge. Miss Matlock, I'm going to ask you a question. Please think carefully before you answer, and then tell me the truth. Have you ever seen this button, or one like it? Come closer, look at it carefully. When did you last see a button like this? I've seen something like it. I can't remember where. There must be hundreds of similar buttons. Try to remember. You've seen something like it. 
Where? In this house. Are you Dominic Swain's mistress, Miss Matlock? Is that why you're shielding him? Because you are shielding him, aren't you? Is that how he paid you? A quick half hour on your bed between his bath and his supper? He was getting it cheap, wasn't he? His alibi for murder? Chief Inspector! Really, Commander, apart from being offensive, I find that suggestion ridiculous. It's grotesque. Why is it ridiculous? Why is it grotesque? You can't bear to believe it, can you? You've had lovers enough in your time. Everyone knows that. You're notorious. Well, you're old now. Crippled and ugly, and no one wants you, man or woman. And you can't bear to think that someone might want me. Well, he did, and he does. He loves me. We love each other. He cares. He knows what my life is like in this house. I'm tired, I'm overworked, and I hate you all. Oh, you didn't know that, did you? You thought I was grateful. Grateful for the job of washing you like a baby. Grateful for waiting on a woman too idle to pick up her own underclothes from the floor. Grateful for the worst bedroom in the house. Grateful for a home, a bed, a roof, the next meal. And you, all of you, you think of no one but yourselves. Do this, Matty. Fetch that, Matty. Run me bath, Matty. I do have a name. He calls me Evelyn. That's my name. I'm not a cat or a dog. I didn't know you felt like this. I blame myself. No, you don't. Those are just words. You've never blamed yourself for anything all your life. Yes, I did sleep with Dominic, and I shall again. He loves me, and I love him. Don't be ridiculous. He was using you. He used you to get a free meal, hot bath, his clothes washed and ironed. And in the end, he used you to get an alibi for murder. Barbara Barone had finished her manicure. Now she surveyed her finished nails with the pleased complacency of a child. Then she looked up and announced quite calmly that she'd known all along that Dominic Swain had been Matty's lover. She went further. She said Swain had told her he was making love to Matty on Paul's bed at the very moment he was being killed. He couldn't have told you. He wouldn't. But Barbara Barone stuck to her guns. Swain had thought the whole thing would amuse her. She'd asked him how he could even bear to touch Matty. He said that he kept his mind on the hot bath water and the free meal. Evelyn Matlock had sunk down on one of the chairs, her face in her hands. After a few moments, she looked up at me. He did go out that night. He told me he wanted to talk to Sir Paul. He told me the door was open when he arrived and that they were dead, both dead. That's what he said. Oh, God. Oh, God. I wish he killed me, too. Evelyn Matlock began crying, great sobs that seemed to tear her chest apart. Sarah Barone looked across at me. But surely Dominic couldn't have done it. There wouldn't have been time to commit the murders and clean up afterwards. Not unless he went by car or bicycle, and Halliwell would have seen or heard him. True, if Halliwell had been there, but he wasn't. 
Halliwell spoke directly to me. He said that Lady Ursula had rung at ten to six, asking for the car. Once inside, she told him to drive to St. Matthew's Church, Paddington. When they arrived, Lady Ursula asked him to park outside the south door. She rang the bell, and Sir Paul answered. She went inside. About half an hour later, she came back to the car and asked Halliwell to join them. That must have been about seven. Sir Paul was there with another man, a tramp. There was a sheet of paper on the table with some lines of handwriting. Sir Paul said he was about to sign his name and wanted Halliwell to witness his signature. Then he signed with his fountain pen, and Halliwell wrote his name underneath. The tramp did the same. When they'd signed, Sir Paul blotted the paper. Then the tramp went out through the door to the right of the fireplace, and Lady Ursula and Halliwell left. So, Mr Halliwell, you lied about being in your flat the whole of that evening? I asked him to lie, Chief Inspector. What happened between me and my son in that vestry wasn't relevant to his death. My son was alive when I left him. I asked Halliwell to say nothing about our visit. We'd almost forgotten Barbara Barone. It isn't true. Dominic didn't do it. Can't you see? Matt is jealous because he never really cared for her. How could he? Look at her. And the family have always hated him, him and me. As for you, you never wanted him to marry me. I was never good enough for your precious sons, either of them. Well, this house is mine now, and I think it would be better if you left. You think this house is yours? Allow me to correct you. What my son signed in the vestry that night was his will. You are adequately provided for, but this house, indeed, all his property is left to me, in trust for his unborn son. If that child does not survive, it comes to me. You see, Commander, I went to make sure that my son knew about the child and whether it was his, and to ask what he intended. I said, if she's carrying your child, I want to ensure that he's born safely, and I want to safeguard his future. If you should die tonight, she'll inherit everything, and your child will have Lampart as a stepfather. Is that what you want? Without speaking, he sat down at the table and wrote out the will. Just eight lines. A reasonable income for his wife, and the rest in trust for the child. Lady Ursula, you have lied consistently. You concealed vital information, knowing full well that you could be helping your son's butcher go free. But that wouldn't have mattered, would it? Not if your daughter-in-law produced an heir. A legitimate heir, Commander. Miss Matlock, Dominic Swain used the affection you had for him to make you lie for him. That was a betrayal. But what you felt for him, or he for you, that's your own business. He did need me. He never had anyone else. It was love. It was. You once asked me whether I missed a box of matches from the kitchen. Well, I did. He must have taken the box with him when he left. When he arrived that evening, did he go alone into any part of the house? Only to take his toilet bag into the bathroom. That means he could have gone into the study. When he came back, was he carrying anything? Only his evening paper folded over. Could he have been using it to conceal the diary from the study? I suppose so. 
I believe we're finished here. Before you leave, Commander, I think you should know that a gun is missing from the study safe. It belonged to my elder son. And I think you can assume that Dominic Swain knows the combination of the safe. My son changed it three days before he died. He had the habit of noting the new combination in pencil on the last page of his diary until he was sure that he and I had memorized it. His practice was to circle the digits on next year's calendar. That was the page which I think you showed me, Commander, had been torn out. I had left Father Barnes with thunder rumbling in the distance. He began locking the dark and empty church. He moved into the passage. Behind the grill was a young man, fair-haired, chisel in hand, and the collection box gaped open. If you're looking for the button, my son, you've come too late. The police have found it. No. No, my son. Please! From the moment I walked into the casualty department and saw my grandmother, small and frightened, I knew there was no longer any choice. I said, It's all right, Gran. You're coming home with me. The next day was hectic. It was after six before I was free to set off to the supermarket. I needed enough food to leave ready for the next three days, for I certainly hoped I'd be able to get back to work the following morning. Suddenly the reality of the situation struck me. My gran and I were locked together now until the old lady died. I let myself into the flat and, as always, turned the key in the security lock. The flat seemed unnaturally silent. Suddenly small facts came together, and even as my hand touched the handle of the closed sitting room door, I knew with absolute certainty that something was wrong. He'd gagged her and tied her to one of the dining chairs with strips of white cloth. He himself stood behind her, eyes blazing, holding the gun with both hands, his arms stretched rigid. As our eyes met, he lowered the gun and placed it against Gran's head. If you want any cooperation from me, take that gag off. I guarantee she'll make no noise. Right, come and take it off yourself. But be careful. Gran, not a sound. If you do, he'll put it on again. Promise? Okay. It'll be all right. Now stand over there against the wall. That's right. Why all this panic? You know we've got no real evidence. Ah, but you have. See, this is where my spare button used to be. Pity these buttons are so distinctive. That's what comes from having expensive tastes. How did you find out about that? From the boy who picked it up outside the church, the morning after the murders. Young Darren. I met him. He told me. Where is he? What have you done to him? Nothing. But he told me about the button and where he put it, so all I had to do was get it back. And after that, the boy would be harmless. But a single button? That's not enough to convict you. Look, don't be a fool. Hand over the gun, go home and call your lawyer. I don't think I can do that. Not now. You see, there's this damned officious priest. Or rather, there was. You killed Father Barnes? <laughs> Shot him. So you see, 
I haven't anything to lose. So what's the plan? I'm getting out. Spain. There's a boat at Chichester Harbour. She belongs to my sister's lover, in case you're interested. You're going to drive me there. Oh, for God's sake, it's the rush hour. It's it easy to risk getting stuck in traffic with every motorist peering into the car? He considered for a moment and then agreed to wait for an hour. I said, look, I've got to ring my boyfriend. He's coming to supper at eight. If he finds the flat empty, he'll know something's wrong. He'll check the car, then he'll ring the yard. I've got to pull him off. He was silent, considering. Then he agreed. Alan, it's Kate. Tonight's off. Now, don't ring back. Just come tomorrow if you feel like it. And Alan, remember to bring me that book you promised. The Shakespeare, Love's Labour's Lost, for crying out loud. See you tomorrow. And remember the Shakespeare. That's okay, you'll keep away. He'd better. Now make us something to eat while we wait. Will omelettes do? I've plenty of eggs. Well, get on with it. He ushered us into the kitchen and got Gran onto a chair and bound her in, still pointing the gun at her head. I thought I might as well ask him about the murders. They always want to talk about it. I asked first about Theresa Nolan. I didn't kill her. She killed herself. Because you made her abort your child? Well, she could hardly expect to have it, could she? Anyway, how are you so sure it was mine? If Barone didn't sleep with her, he wanted to. Why else would he have thrown me into the river? Who did he think he was? He was going to leave my sister for his dreary whore. Or for his god. He humiliated me in front of Diana. Well, he chose the wrong man. Before I left the house that morning, he told Evening where he'd be spending the night. I took his bike, and when I got there, he let me in. Odd that. He knew I was coming. He was expecting me, and he wanted to die. God rot him. He could have tried to stop me, pleaded, argued, please. That's all I wanted from him. The priest could say it, but not Paul Barone. He looked at me with such contempt. I wouldn't have done it. Not if he'd have spoken to me. Christ, why didn't he stop me? And Diana Travers? Did you kill her too? Oh, I didn't need to. The weeds did it for me. She dived and didn't come up. Damned if I was going to rescue her. She'd laughed at me. I whirled round and flung myself at him. The shot shattered the air. An instant later, there was a second explosion and the door of the flat burst open. And then I saw A.D. coming towards me, speaking my name, willing me to keep my eyes on him. Sobbing wildly, I buried my head against A.D.'s jacket. Then I pulled away, fighting for control. And over A.D.'s shoulder, I saw Swain, handcuffed, being dragged out. He jerked his head at my gran's body. Well, you're free of her now. Aren't you going to thank me? Aren't you? I'll never know whether I wanted it to happen. Her death, I mean. You heard what Swain called out. Aren't you going to thank me? He knew. Of course you didn't want it to happen, Kate. We all feel partly responsible when we lose someone we love. It's natural guilt, but it isn't rational. You didn't kill your grandmother. Swain did. His final victim. But with murder, there never is a final victim. 
No one touched by Paul Barone's death will remain unchanged, myself included. Kate knew that perfectly well. But she's tough. She'll learn to bear her personal load of guilt, just as I've learned to carry mine. Yes. Some can gaze and not be sick, but I could never learn the trick. There's this to say for blood and breath. They give a man a taste for death. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.